You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Proverbs is part of a literary genre known as wisdom uh, literature. And as the name implies, its purpose is to impart wisdom. Many of these wise sayings stand independently from the surrounding verses. There is precious little context. And then interpreting them can be tricky because these are proverbs. They're not laws. They are general principles, not absolute axioms. A law is universally applicable, but a proverb uh, only applies in certain situations. Consider this from Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Okay, that's pretty cool. Pretty clear. Uh, When a fool speaks to me, I just ignore him, right? But the very next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, we can't say that the... uh, uh, If you take these as laws, you have a hopeless contradiction, right? But the writer is telling us that there are some situations where you need to answer the fool, and there are other situations where it's better just to keep quiet. English Proverbs sort of work the same way, right? Uh, There are times when you might say, he who hesitates is lost, especially if you're a salesperson, right? Uh, But there are other times when you might want to be saying, uh, look before you leap. Well, which is right? It depends on on the situation. And so how do you know which proverb to apply in which situation? Well, that requires wisdom. And that's why it's called wisdom literature, I suppose. What works in one situation may not be so helpful in another. A couple of years ago, a missionary a couple colleague of ours brought home a new baby. They were so proud of baby Ezra and the older siblings, Sarah and Sam, were arguing over who gets to hold Ezra. No, I want to hold my turn. No, you had your... You know how kids do, right? And so their dad, Stephen, deciding to, to implement some of the wisdom of Solomon, said, well, I guess we'll just have to cut Ezra in two and give each of you a half. And Sarah said, I get the head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes you can get some unexpected results when you, when you don't apply wisdom, uh, wisdom correctly. Well, today we're going to do our best with this theme of friendship in the book of Proverbs, a very important subject. And before we dive into it, it might be helpful to observe that we were designed to be social creatures. God created us to live in relationship with Him and with other people. If you just read the creation account in, in Genesis, everything God creates, it's good. Oh, it is good. God saw that it was good, and God saw and it is very good. And then He saw that the man was alone, and He said, it is not good. We were created to live in relationship. And to the extent that our relationship with God and our relationship with others is damaged or non-existent, our quality of life is going to be impoverished. 
Two centuries ago, Sidney Smith said, Life is to be fortified by many friendships. To love and be loved is the greatest happiness of existence. But too many people are missing out on this happiness. The health insurer Cigna did a study a few years ago, and it found that most Americans report feeling lonely, left out, and not known. A Barna research found that the majority of adults has anywhere between two and five close friends. That's 62%. But one in five regularly or often feels lonely. And those who report the highest levels of loneliness are single, male, and likely earning a lower income. Today is our prime text. I want to use Proverbs 18.24. And there's only one verse because none of the verses around it have anything to do with it. But if you'd like to hear it or if you'd like to look it up, here it is. It says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Closer than a brother. We need such friends. You need a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You might have noticed how the verse contrasts many companions with one truly close friend. In the book of Proverbs, the word companion generally has a negative connotation. Here are some examples. Proverbs 13.20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 28.7, The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Proverbs 28, 24, whoever robs his father or his mother and says, that's no transgression, is a companion to the man who destroys. Proverbs 29, verse 3, he who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. And then, of course, our verse, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Good friends, as opposed to mere companions, uh, make you better. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. You need the kind of friend who sharpens you. You need the kind of friend who makes you a better person. You need the kind of friend who's not going to bring you down, but who's going to build you up. That's why Proverbs 24, or sorry, 22 verses 24 and 25 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. See, it's really important not just to have friends, but to have the right friends. Uh, for those of you who are parents, if you want to have children to grow up to be wise, you need to guide them in how to choose the right friends. And so what is it 
that makes for a good friend? Well, in my survey of this topic this past week in Proverbs, I found three things that I'd like to highlight for you. Consistent love is one. Unwavering loyalty. And what I'm calling constructive honesty. Constructive honesty. We'll get to that in a minute. Well, let's consider consistent love. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Now, many people want to be friends with the rich and powerful people, don't they? Friends, I should put that in air quotes, because they're not really friends. They're, they're, they're simply people who want to exploit a relationship for their own purposes. Uh, Harry Truman recognized that when he was president. He said, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. <laughs> well, a real friend. A real friend is somebody who's going to, to love you even when you're not at your best and have very little to offer. At those times, you find out who your true friends are. And uh, many of us have been there, and some of us have learned the hard way who our true friends are. Unwavering loyalty. It's the second thing you want to look for in a good friend. Proverbs 27.10 begins this way. Do not forsake your friend. You cannot put a price tag on loyal friendship. On the other hand, disloyalty or betrayal will ruin a friendship. Many of us have experienced the pain of disloyalty. Uh, some have even been betrayed by a marriage partner who vowed uh, fidelity and unwavering loyalty. Now, if you know such pain, and if you have known such pain, the answer is not to avoid close relationships. <laughs> there was a song, I know I'm dating myself by this, but Simon and Garfunkel sang a song uh, that, that was entitled, I am a rock, and the words were just saying, I'm a rock, I'm an island, I don't need friendships, I don't need any, anybody else. And it was making all these boasts and, and all these claims, but the tag at the end of the song reveals what the real issue is. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. In other words, I've been hurt really badly. And I don't want to be hurt again. And so I'm just going to avoid all relationships. Well, that approach is only going to lead to a sad and lonely existence. You see, friendship involves risk. It does. There's no way to avoid that. Friendship involves risk. And the closer the relationship, the greater the risk. But the rewards of a loyal friend make the risk worthwhile. Thirdly, I want to mention constructive honesty. Constructive honesty. Proverbs 27.9 says this, Oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. And the Proverbs uh, earlier, just a few verses earlier in verse 5 and 6 of that same chapter, 
Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. (laughs) A friend is a person who will tell you the hard truths. The things you may not want to hear, but the things that you need to hear. There was a young woman in my college class who was not the kind of person you really wanted to hang out with because she had terrible B.O. Uh, Nobody wanted to tell her that, but uh, she later reported that she had seen a counselor, and the counselor said, you know, if you had any true friends, they would have told you uh, about, about that. People who don't care... Uh, who don't care about you, they'll tell you what you want to hear. But a real friend is one who will tell you what you need to hear. I've qualified the word honesty with constructive, as you may have noticed. There are some things that you can tell people that are true, but aren't necessarily helpful. Right? In fact, they can be positively harmful. But constructive criticism is different. Criticism hurts, but constructive criticism is is more like the the surgeon's scalpel than the warrior's sword. It, It wounds, but it's a faithful wound, as Proverbs says. It's a wound that's intended uh, to heal. And that's why we, we read in Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Would you rather be flattered or rebuked? Well, at the time, I'd rather be flattered. Thank you very much. But in the long run, a good rebuke is more valuable and it's going to be more helpful for you kids. Parents are really good at rebuking, you know. They're really good at that. We are really good at that, I should say. And it doesn't always feel very good when you're, when you're on the receiving end of the rebuke. But trust me, later on you'll be thankful that your parents cared enough to rebuke you, to let you develop into more responsible people and, and greater adults. But the question arises, where are you going to find? Where are you going to find this loyal, loving, honest friend? Well, the gospel includes this bit of good news. In Christ, you have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus will be absolutely honest with you. He's not going to gloss over your sins or your faults or your weaknesses. He's not going to euphemize these things that are are in your life that don't need to be there. He's going to reveal them, and that can hurt. The Bible says that light has come into the world, talking about Jesus. And men prefer darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. If you come 
to Jesus, he's going to be so honest with you. You are going to be exposed to the light. And there is certain pain in that exposure. But it's the pain that leads to your healing. Uh, in Uganda, we have only two seasons. Maybe Arizona is the same. I see we do have a monsoon season. But the two seasons we have in Uganda are the wet season and the dry season. That's their real names. On my more cynical days, I call them the dust season and the mud season. <laughs> in the dry season, I don't, uh, well, everything's open. We don't have air conditioning, so everything's open. I don't care how good a housekeeper you are. You're going to have dust everywhere, okay? And, and you can dust a table, and five minutes later, you could write your name in it with your finger. So what do you do? Well, there's a couple of approaches. If I see dust on the table, I can dust the table again. Or I can close the curtains, because if I close the curtains and the light doesn't shine in, then it doesn't show up so much. That works, right? <laughs> but don't try that in your life. When you close the curtain of your life and don't let God's light shine in to expose what's in you, then you can't be cleansed and you can't be healed. You need that absolute honesty, that constructive honesty that Jesus is going to give you as a friend who sticks closer to a brother. He's going to show you that your greatest need is salvation. You need salvation. All of us as sinners, all of us are condemned to an eternity apart from God because of our sinfulness, because of our choices. But the good news of the gospel is that God loves us in spite of our sinfulness. And he gave his son for us. God so loved the world, the Bible says, that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So you see, you can really, really uh, appreciate this wound of honesty when you realize what results is a wonderful salvation. Besides being an honest friend, Jesus is a loyal friend. He promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you've ever been left or forsaken by a person that you consider a good friend, you know how painful that can be. But that's not the kind of friend Jesus is. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you know what? The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. When he tells you that, you can bank on it. You can bet your life on it. You can entrust your soul to it. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And, of course, Jesus is that loving friend as, as well. He is the lover of your soul. Listen to what he told his disciples in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. Did you notice verse 13? Greater love has no one than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. When Jesus laid down his life for you on Calvary. This was the greatest demonstration of love that's possible. For you see, the Bible says that because of our sins, we were enemies of God. Jesus said, no man has greater love than he laid down his life for his friends. Well, Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. And he laid down his life to make us enemies his friends. He laid down his life for us. And that demonstrates God's love. As Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You have not yet come to Christ and received this ultimate friendship. <laughs> the most important takeaway you can get this morning from this message is come to Him. Today is the day of salvation. You can come to Him now and He will not turn you away. He will receive you. You don't have to clean up your act to come to Him. You come to Him and He'll worry about cleaning up your act after you come, right? But you do need to come. You do need to come. And one of the benefits of having this friend that sticks closer to a, a brother is that through Christ, you can be a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In our worship time, the verse was mentioned, we love because he first loved us. You see, we have a limited capacity to love. Jesus does not have a limited capacity to love. He has an infinite capacity to love. But when we receive his love, our capacity to love others is expanded. That's why we are able to love one another. And that's why it's so important in a marriage relationship that both Spouses, be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and be receiving His love. Because as you grow closer to Him, the, the wife and the husband grow closer to Him, you'll also be growing closer together. That's the right kind of love triangle, by the way, right? Where you are growing closer to, to God as you grow closer uh, you grow closer to one another as you grow closer uh, to God. If you're going to have a, uh, a meaningful relationship, there's always going to be a cost. There is a necessity of sacrifice. And though most of us aren't called literally to lay down our lives for our others, even for our spouse, we have to learn how to conquer selfishness and self-centeredness 
in our relationships. I remember years ago preaching on, uh, preaching on the passage in Ephesians 5. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. And I gave the example that you have to be willing to even die for your wife. Well, that, afterward, an older preacher who was in the congregation that day came up to me and said, You know, I think you, I think you missed the point of that. Well, that's what every preacher wants to hear, right? No. <laughs> Give me the flattery, please. No. <laughs> no, no. But he said, Look, because you see, Christ was not just willing to lay down his life. He did lay down his wife. For his bride. And we have to not only be willing to die, not, not envisioning ourselves in, in, some, in some noble scenario of running into a burning building to save our wife or whatever the case may be for us husbands, but, but we need to realize that it's a far more real, if more mundane, kind of death and sacrifice that's required of us. It means dying to yourself day by day. And that's what it means. That's what it's going to involve to have a, a close relationship. And I'm mentioning this mostly in a marriage relationship because although I want every, uh, all of us to have other close friends, the most important human relationship that you can have is with your own spouse. And if you're not in a situation, if you're married and you're not in a situation where your spouse is your best friend, please get some counseling. Okay? It's really, really important that, that you develop that type of relationship with your spouse. And those of you who are wanting to be married as well need to be looking for that type of, of person, not only who will be <laughs> the kind of friend who sticks closer than the brother, but to whom you can be that same kind of friend. True friendships are never built around sweet words and nice feelings. They're built around sur surrendering of your own rights for the good of the other person. Uh, Dr. Ed Wheat wrote a book some years ago that I still use. It's a classic book called Love Life for Every Married Couple. And he lays out a fourfold prescription for the development of best friends among uh, spouses. He uses the word best and makes an acrostic out of it to, to, make, it, uh, to make it more memorable. The B stands for blessing. Uh, that means you learn to respond to, uh, to your partner uh, in love, especially in times of hostility or anger, right? The E stands for the principle of edifying, learning to build up and nourish your partner emotionally and spiritually, and especially in those areas where he or she feels insecure or inadequate. The S is for sharing, learning to share your lives together, going beyond uh, the sharing of the children to exploring the depths of the person God has given to you. And T is touching, learning to show your love by tender care, touch, 
caring touch or a hug as an ongoing way of, of life. Be developing these kind of friendships, but especially with your spouse. Only one friendship <laughs> like that, like that. Only one really best friend, but lots of other good friends. This is why we are in community, right? We're in community not so that we can just eat, eat donut holes and drink coffee, right? We're, we're, we're in community so that we can share in each other's lives. We're in community so that we can be developing meaningful friendships uh, with, with others. We come to love one another as we have been loved. And we recognize that all of these healthy relationships that we have with one another, these horizontal relationships, depend on the vertical relationship between each of us and the Lord Jesus Christ.